What's up, guys? This is the In The Zone podcast hosted by Sam Sherbin and Max Cho. Now, Sam and I met a few years ago at the Bowery Hotel in New York City. And there we had a conversation that would lead us on a long journey. How can we best humanize the individuals behind some of your favorite records? Now, myself as an artist manager and Sam as a mixing engineer, we felt passionately for the need to humanize these stories to humanize the individuals behind the boards who are responsible for crafting the songs that have become the soundtracks to your lives. We want to use this podcast as a platform for telling those stories. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to the In The Zone podcast. In The Zone podcast with Max Cho and Sam Sherman, and we have our first guest, Stuart White, an esteemed multi-Grammy Award winner. Works with the likes of Beyonce, Jay-Z. Start off the conversation to see how he gets in the zone. So, Stu, where, where are you from, man? I'm, uh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And, um, Thank you. you know, um, really excited. Um, but uh, anyway, um, I'm from Raleigh, North Carolina, originally. Um, mm-hmm. I left in 2001 to go to Full Sail. And did that for a year, and then I went to New York and started a quad. That's that's amazing. You you spent only a year in Full Sail. Was it a different program then? Yeah, it was just a year as associates. It was just one year at that time, twelve months. And uh, nice, nice. I don't know how long it is now, but that's what it was then. Yeah, and this was two thousand. I graduated two thousand two, so it was a while ago. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I when I graduated in uh, two thousand and eight, they made it a four year program. Uh, and um, I was wondering, like, what was the facilities back then, and how did you find about Full Sail, you know, coming where you're from? Were they posting stuff on ads or, like, sound on sound? Actually, in those days, man, there was n- almost no advertisements for s- engineering schools that I ever saw um, anywhere. Um, I heard about Full Sail through a coworker. Where, where I was delivering pizzas at the time. And uh, a co a coworker. Um, I was really into DJing and scratching and turntablism and and making beats and stuff like that. And I'd always been a huge music fan. And all my friends were were into music. And and this guy that I worked with at a pizza shop, he was like telling me about this school for audio engineering. And he said his his friend or his cousin went there, and um, he was like on tour doing like touring and stuff like that. Um, and I remember I went home that day and looked at the website and was just transfixed and just was like, oh, my God, I didn't know shit like this existed. You know, this is uh, I have to do this. I have to go here. This is this is for me, you know. And um, I just uh, from that point forward, I just became obsessed with going there and uh, figured out how to to make it happen. And then I went like maybe, I don't know, four or five months later. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, what was the what was the facilities oh, like? Did were they having yeah. multi rooms? Yeah, it was. Um, I don't know what it's like now, but back then, um, all the uh, they had well, they had the uh, SSL J nine thousand, um, and they had an AMEC ninety ninety eight. They were the two large format analog consoles that we learned. Um, mm-hmm. I think they had an Eve Capricorn, and. They had the uh, Sony digital consoles and the lab rooms. But in those days, we didn't have our own rooms. 
you know, I think now they have like, when you do labs, everybody has their own room. You can mix on speakers, but we had to mix on headphones because everybody was in the same room back then. And, but, uh, yeah, it was cool. I remember, um, I, I, my teachers, I remember Hunter Minning. He was really great. He's, he's a, he's a full cell legend, but yeah, it's kind of all blurred together. Honestly, those days, I mean, it, it went quick and, uh, mm. you know, but, um, yeah, it was great. Were were you interning before at different studios before you went to quad mm-hmm. or were you, you just went to quad? Yeah, I just went to quad. I interviewed, um, I interviewed at battery and unique studios. Um, and maybe, yeah, that's it really. And then, but quad by far, like the energy when I walked in quad, just the way the staff was vibing and, and, um, I remember, um, my girlfriend, um, uh, Weston Souter, AKA Willis. Um, we were roommates for years <laughs> and, um, he works at RCA now as an admin A&R, but, uh, he, I remember him working the desk and working the phones and he just had this certain like kind of, um, organized swag, like the way he had everything organized and the way he was organizing all the interns and way he was calling around using the phone system. And, you know, and I just saw kind of how the operation worked and I just remember falling in love with it just immediately, just the vibe there. And, and, uh, it, quad was quad is and and was then especially like a different vibe you know a lot of people say it was kind of a party studio but it was um it was everything we had you know we we had a lot of fun there but at the same time you know a lot of work got done and it was five ssl rooms and and uh, all the biggest artists were working in and out of there it was really fun times yeah those were those were different times i think you know it was always wondering how you go from like a full sale where there's a multi-room consoles and SSLs. Yeah. And then nowadays you would go to a full sale with a duality and then come out of that into a studio that is like in the box or doesn't even have a console to begin with. Right. So it's very interesting that you got that technical knowledge and then you can immediately apply it with your own skill set and people skills and just kill it, you know, from there. Yeah, I feel like I was really lucky to get in it when I got in it, you know, in that sense that I caught, you know, the tail end of of analog and I would have probably had no experience on analog tape, but being that, you know, I was at Quad and we had Studer tape machines in every single room, we had 48 tracks of analog in every room and we would do free time and we would use people's reels and stuff like that, you know, staff members that had like tracks recorded on tape and we would do a lot of free time on tape and and um i got to assist russell elevato for a year or so off and on and and he did a lot of cool projects and he was all analog based tape based and um I, i'm lucky to have catched that tail end that process of making records on tape with a big board you know in a big studio you know in that way because it, it's it's a great way to make a record it's rarely done nowadays um nobody has the budgets for it obviously um it's still happening i think maybe more so in nashville maybe but um yeah it, it was i feel very very lucky to, to, to experience making records in that way and developing your ear initially you know where you're not we were using pro tools but you know it was much more like mixing at the console and not looking at things and just you know writing automation by ear and not like by eye <laughs> But <laughs> yeah, uh, it was a fun time. I, I mean, I love the technology that we have now. 
don't get me wrong, but it's, uh, I feel lucky to have gotten to experience both worlds. So when you were, uh, assisting, um, like Russell Alvado or any other engineer, were you, um, seeing certain things that they were doing that you're kind of picking up on or certain things that you were doing that were making their lives easier in a sense of, you know, we're working on tape, you know, were you checking and doing punches for the guy, things like that, patching things for him or. Yeah. Yeah. In those days, assistants got to do a lot more and assistants were required to know and do a lot more. I think even, you know, especially with the analog sessions, most of the producer engineers that did those sessions, you know, they didn't want to run the tape machine, you know, if they didn't have to, you know, they would let you do that and you would, you know, do all the patching, all the transport control of the tape machine, all the punches, and they would just sit there at the faders and mix and tweak and, and, and coach the artists or whatever. And um, it was just a great way to work um, in that way where, you, you know, you, you, you got a lot of experience, you know, early on in that way. Same thing with the, with even the hip hop sessions that were all pro tools based at that point, a lot of the engineers that would come in, they were still learning pro tools. Um, they knew how to record, but a lot of times they didn't know how to set up grids or, or whatever. And they might be great mixers and great engineers and have, you know, been doing it a long time. But again, it was that transition from tape to pro tools and, and everybody was still learning. So coming out mm -hmm. of full cell and having like a ton of uh, pro tools background, you know, as far as them drilling it into our brains in school, I was able to, you know, really just move right into assisting within a week. And, and, and I didn't have to intern very long and, and uh, got to help out these, you know, great engineers that were coming in out of the studio all the time and, and, and got to really get my hands dirty. You know, in those days, too, it was a lot of synchronization stuff. You know, NPCs had to be locked up to Pro Tools, locked up to tape, locked up to the board, you know, running automation in the tracking sessions, even on the board, you know, to do the rough mixes at the end of the night. There was a lot of note taking. We recalled every piece of gear in the room every session, no matter what it was. It was a different process, you know. Nowadays, it's, mm -hmm. assisting is kind of a lost art, you know. There, there are great assistants out there, but, you know, it's just a different world and the, the different, you know. They don't get – engineers come in and they plug in one mic if it's a vocal session and they do everything in Pro Tools and assistants don't really get to get their hands dirty on a lot of things and they're not forced to learn how to do things, you know, because in those days it was sink or swim with all the – technical aspects of running the board and the tape machine and the synchronization and making sure all the, you know, things were clocked correctly. And it was, uh, it was, it was, a, it was definitely, uh, a, a lot of fun actually, you know, it really, you know, kept you sharp. You know, I don't know if that answered your question, but no, no, it, it, that was, that was great because, you know, I noticed nowadays a lot of engineers, there's a lot of shortcuts to what we do. You know, there's like, all in vocal tools, all in these things. I'm like, well, you know, back in the day, guys had to like literally go downstairs and like adjust the plate reverb and come back upstairs and listen to it. And like, it's just a sense of uh, the skill set and the engineering knowledge to actually run sessions and make, make sure that things are working well because Pro Tools is an amazing thing and you can just, you know, control, undo everything. Yeah. Back in the day, like, if you control, you couldn't do that. You were like, you were, you had to be sharp and you had to be 
very strict on your your regimen. So another question I had was, um, when you came out of quad, were you freelancing after that point when you were at quad for a long time? Um, yeah, it kind of went like, well, I got out of school and I got a job at quad in the interview. They told me they were like, Hey, we really need some, some assistance. You know, we have interns, we have GAs and stuff, but they're not, they're not moving up quick enough for us. And, and we, you know, if you can, if you can show us that you know how to assist or whatever, like you could, you could start really fast. So I was super hungry and motivated and, and I'd been recording you know my roommates for a year in the studio like in our home studio so i just felt comfortable comfortable to do all that so i moved into assisting really quick in like a week or so and then and then from there i was doing a little bit of engineering too because guys would double book themselves on different gigs around town and they would get an assistant that knew how to track vocals and they'd let you track vocals while they were double booked and um that was kind of the game at the time in new york and um, from there, um, what was your question again? Yeah, how long oh, were you oh, at, yeah. uh, at Quad for? I so I started freelancing yep. pretty quick. You know, like I started assisting and engineering kind of, you know, at the same time um, because we had a lot of late night rap sessions that, you know, would just be people, you know, some be, sometimes it'd be sign artists, sometimes it wouldn't, sometimes it'd be see a lot of COD stuff late at night, just guys, you know, without record contracts that just had cash and they were trying to record. And I did a lot of those sessions right off the bat. And so I was kind of assisting freelancing all at the same time. Um, and when I left quad, let's see, I started working for Alicia Keys pretty soon after I got there. Um, and Mincielli was uh, the top staff assistant um, slash engineer at Quad at the time. And she was working a lot with Alicia Keys. And then they they were at a studio called Campo for a while. And then they came back to Quad um, to, do, to finish up the Diary album. And then I jumped in. And I started working with Alicia as an assistant at that point. And... And then, and then right around that time, Quad kind of the business started to suffer. And then Alicia built a studio after the Diary album, after the tour that followed the Diary album. And then I kind of went to work for Alicia exclusively. Um, so that was two or three years into it, assisting engineering kind of everything for Alicia. I mean, we were, we, we, you know, we would clean, you know, we would go get fruit. We would, we would, um, we would record vocals. We would do big tracking sessions. We would do everything, you know? Um, mm -hmm. and then, um, and then I started working with Alicia's production partner, Carrie, that for a while. And that was, I guess the, where I just stopped assisting totally, I guess it was like three or four or five years in. And then, yeah. So I guess it was like two or three years after I started at quad that I went freelance. And then I would just assist in certain moments. Like if we were, if Alicia was finishing a record and she needed me to come assist a mixer like Manny or Tony Maserati or whoever was mixing those Alicia records at the time, sometimes I would come in and assist um, after I'd been engineering for a long time just because Anne needed someone that would just go in there and, you know, kind of crush it and really knew how to, to assist a mixer, you know? Yeah, I mean... Uh... 
I don't know if you you know that article uh, you were in it. It was Sonic Scoop article on Alicia's album. Oh yeah, Element of Freedom. That was, yeah, exactly. That was that was the time. Yeah, that was that era kind of. Well, Element of Freedom, yeah, was yeah, right around that time too. I guess it was like di- or it was like Diary, then As I Am, then Element of Freedom. It was all like one like five year blur, five or six year blur. Yeah, there was there was an article and it had Manny on there, had Tony on there. Yeah. I think they and Ann was on there, and I remember I was in high school. I read that article like every single day. Oh, really? <laughs> like, I was obsessed because that was like the first article where they had they showed you everybody's role in the record, oh, and it yeah. individually showed everyone. And like, it it uh, I remember it showed uh, you guys in the studio. I think it was you and um, Eric, Eric. Yeah, Eric Madrid was, was Eric? there. Yeah. 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 Eric Madrid, um, Manny, Tony, Dave Kutch, and uh, Val and Mickey. Uh, Mickey Tatumi was there, you know, uh, mm-hmm. extraordinary um, mixer engineer that does all the her stuff. Um, yeah. Mickey came up in that time with us. Yeah. Me and Mickey, we go way back to, we, we started, we started at quad together. Like he was one year after me, I think. So like 17 years, you've known each other. Um, <laughs> That's insane. It's crazy, right? <laughs> the quad alumni is insane. I mean, yeah. um, when, when I was assisting, when I met you um, down in the Avenue A studio, Chris Cody yep. was mixing like TV on the radio. And I'll go downstairs and like TV, they'll be like sitting on the couch and he'll be like mixing on the SSL. Yeah. And like you, you had the room next door and all that. It was just like... Yeah. It's insane. Uh, could you, could you, um, do you know the history? It seems like you know a lot of the history of that room or like that basement. Cause I didn't oh, even yeah. know that. Yeah. Um, the basement on, uh, Avenue A and second, um, that building is legendary. I, um, I, the strokes did their first album there in the back room. Everybody knows that they tagged the wall in the elevator, the elevator shaft has their, the strokes, Tag or whatever so everybody knows that it's kind of legendary for that and um uh chris cody um and his uh then partner at the time dave told they bought the uh the 32 channel ssl uh eg um from quad and they recapped it put it in that room and that was chris's main console for mixing down there for a long time and you know he did beach house and grizzly bear and like you know tv on the radio and all this fucking dope shit um down there and went on a good run um and then chris is the reason why um i got a room in that studio because i was living in the lower east side at the time and i was freelancing around new york and jungle was keeping me booked pretty good but then i remember a six-week period where like Kanye came into jungle and he booked every single room and I didn't work with Kanye. So like, you know, I didn't have, I, I, I didn't have anywhere to engineer for like five weeks or whatever <laughs> it was that Kanye was booked at jungle. And I was like, Oh shit, man, I need to get my own studio or I'm going to sink, you know, like I need, I need, I need to, um, I got to have my own room. So I started looking and looking and looking. And then I remember I saw Chris post something on Facebook one day and I commented on it. And, I, and then I just started texting him randomly. I was like, Hey man, do you know anybody in town's got a room? And he's like, actually the guy next to me has a room that's coming available. 
And I was like, oh, shit, you're you're on Avenue A in second, right? He's like, yeah. So I'm literally on Broom and Orchard at that point. So I walked from Broom and Orchard over to Avenue A in second, which is like anybody that knows. It's just a few blocks away in the Lower East Side. And, uh, and checked out the room, and I just locked it in right there and got that room. And then and then bought the attack wall and like treated it and like that actually became one of the best mixed rooms I've ever had. Um, really sounded good in there. And, uh, and that was the beginning of my three or four year period of being in that, that room where I would do a lot of different projects. I mixed a lot of Beyonce stuff in there, mixed a lot of, um, FKA twigs in there and, and, uh, Autolux and all kinds of stuff like that. But yeah, that was a fun time. But that, that basement, I think uh, Mark Ronson, I, my, I heard, had a room in there at one point. John Hill had had that room that the Strokes had um, in the back. Um, <laughs> the rooms are crazy, man. Yeah, um, there's a lot of, it's a lot of fucking, like, game-changing shit done down there. I mean, I think, this, I, I'm not sure if John Hill did Santa Gold down there, but he might have been in Brooklyn when he did Santa Gold, but either way, it was right around that era of John Hill doing coming up and and whatnot. I came oh, later, yeah. Peter Wade had Peter Wade had a room right, there yeah. Too, Peter Wade had a room yeah, Peter. There. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I have his chair. Like like Peter Wade left a chair and it had his name on the back of it, and I I literally still have the chair in my studio right now. So Peter, if you're out there, and you want your chair back? Holler at me. Yeah, you want to hear a really funny story? I have your chair. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, your chair. You you left it, and I was like, I need a chair. And then, uh, oh, really? What chair? Uh, Ken, Ken, Kenavan was like, here's Stu's chair. The chair that you were oh, using with, like the, with fake, the neck. Fake Herman Miller chair? Yeah, yeah, I have it. Yeah, okay. That's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that basement was crazy because, like, we brought an attack wall down there to to that was the only way we could do the record and uh uh for for the people listening out there i assisted on this record mossy produced by dean tuza which Stu mixed you mixed most of it right if not i mixed a few songs yeah i mixed like three songs. few songs on yeah. yeah i mixed shipping yard and, and um I, f- I forgot the other ones yeah there's two of us i mixed three songs Dude, you you absolutely killed those mixes. Oh, I heard, I heard, I I know the uh, the the roughs, the producer roughs were insane, but you just took it way over to the next level, man. I think uh, without like adding crazy things just to be like, hey, I did a mix. Like, here's the difference between what you did and what I did. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, that was a really fun collaboration between Mossy Dean and me, and we had talked about the sound of that record for a long time before I did anything because we just were neighbors we were both down in that basement and um we would just hang out and go get coffee and stuff and 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 talk about music play music and so we had talked about me mixing some stuff for a while and I think uh, through those conversations I think Dean and Mossy just really wanted to just see what my take would be on those mixes and just for me to just you know do whatever I felt, you know, brought it out the right energy from them. Um, we talked a lot about like blurring genre, which is something I'm real passionate about. Um, you know, in 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 having like that psychedelic rock thing, but having a big pronounced sub bass bottom in like a hip hop record in a sense and kind of merging those two worlds together. We felt like that was something that would really be cool for that project and then yeah mixing those songs i spent a long time like you know experimenting doing effects and different things like that and they would push me like 
I think that uh, Shipping Yard song, I think the vocal was much drier at first, and then Mossy came back and was like, you know, I want you to go further, go further, go further. And and um, I really, I like that, you know, I like that environment, you know, where I can get to, you know, be creative in that sense and, and kind of help fill out the production in a way. And, you know, there's a lot of philosophies out there, different mixers as far as, you know, mixers not putting their imprint on stuff or whatever. Or, but at the end of the day, it's like if someone wants your opinion and wants your taste, wants your style, wants, you know, what you do and they're asking you for it, you know, it's great. It's a lot of fun. But at the same time, it's a fine line from from doing it really, really well or just, you know, like doing it to do it or like adding stuff to add it. Like I'm not trying to overthink anything. I'm just trying to listen to everything like a fan you know, and just try to, like, how would I want to hear this as a fan of this music, which I was definitely a fan of Mossy's record, so it's like, oh, this is going to be fun, you know. Yeah, that's, you know, I think that's uh, a, a way of thinking, because a lot of people would mix, and it would be like Rough Mix 2.0, and I think uh, when you're working with a producer, and a producer is kind of pushing you, uh, Max, uh, manages me and he also manages the producer nick that i work with a lot and when i'll do mixes for nick i'll just add like little things a little hi-hat things and program bits and pieces not just to do it just to add some flavor and he'll hear and he'll pick up on it he'll just love it or you know uh or or say oh change this and change that we'll just go back and forth on the mix and production and um yeah it's amazing when you have that collaborative effort yeah, I, th- I think it's a lot. Of, it's really rewarding for both, and it's, you know, it's a lot of fun. I think it's a conversation that needs to happen. You know, you don't, you definitely don't want to just take somebody's record and just start doing that stuff. You know, without getting permission. You know, um, um, and I feel super passionate about that. You know, like if you know some records, you know, they come to you and they want rough mix two point You know, and that's yeah, that's fine you know and especially if they you if they killed their rough you know and they just need it just taking another five percent more you know um or and they want it just tweaked a little bit or you know maybe just you know pull some of the harshness back if you were like you know fill the bottom end out or make it a little wider or create some more depth you know sometimes it just needs a little bit of something you know and i and i'm totally cool doing that too um but at the same time, you know, a lot of times, you know, producers record and engineer all their stuff and their background is more in, music, in musical background and in production background and not in mixing and engineering. So they don't really like their rough mix, you know, necessarily, you know, it, it, it doesn't sound like a finished record to them. So like, you know, then. I can bring my experience and knowledge as far as being a finisher, you know, and just being able to finish things and like get it sounding like a record and getting all the transitions to happen. Right. And getting all the energy to move from section to section, just right. And all those types of things, which, Mm -hmm. you know, you know, just it's taste, you know, just, you know, having the right taste for the project and, you know, and really understanding what they're trying to do and helping them and, you know, pull it out because a lot of times if you get that right you send it back to them and it may sound it might be a different mix but at the same time they're like man this is what i wanted it like but i just didn't know you know what to do or i didn't know you know how to get it there or whatever how to explain it you know and that 
that's really rewarding, you know, to be able to work with people that, you know, are, you know, cool to like, cool to let you take chances in that way. And, you know, we'll also not like freak out if something's not totally the way they want it. You know, they'll give you a second chance to be like, well, you know, I like what you did here, but you know, this is a little too far. These effects are not quite right. I don't feel like, so you can pair that back a little bit rather than, you know, if it sounds 2% different than the rough mix and then they just reject it because, you know, they, you know, it's not, you know, they're just like, oh, it's not what we want or whatever. Having that relationship, having that communication built in, having that trust is all necessary to be able to, to work in that manner, I feel like, you know. But I take, I take it really seriously, you know, because at the end of the day, it's not my songs, it's their songs. And they got to be happy with it forever, you know. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there, um, there's, there's mixers like Chad Blake who really push things and develop techniques. Are, are there, were there any records that you were kind of testing new techniques and trying to get different combinations of sounds? Because I saw that you were doing like parallel stereo bus work. That was really, really interesting because um, you were, you were essentially uh, changing the mood of the whole mix via the stereo bus opposed to the individual elements yeah. uh, changing. So where there were certain records where you're like, I need to push this. I don't know how to push this and come up with a new technique, like how Brower had to do for uh, his records. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think Brower was definitely the person who to put me on to the multiple stereo bus um, ideology you know, techniques and stuff. Um, I think it, it comes from necessity. You know, and they say uh, necessity is the mother of invention. Um, and I remember um, reading Michael Brower's website way back in the day. I, I worked at Quad when he was there, but we never worked together. But um, I cleaned his room. And the first day I ever, <laughs> um, my first internship, I think, ever at the studio, I cleaned his room with my boy Alonzo Vargas, who's a mixer in New York. And, um, we uh, quickly cleaned the room so we could like look at his patch bay and look at the console and see what the fuck he was doing. Cause it was like, why is every fader not in the stereo bus? You know, like why is, you know, why does he have so many fucking patch cables? Why does he have this separate patch bay next to the patch bay? It was the first time we had ever seen that type of signal flow, signal chain. And, and at first it, it, it didn't really click, but then when he put all that information on his website and then we read it, like we were like oh wow that's kind of cool you know like because you can have you know your drums being compressed in a way and your guitars being compressed in a way and they're not making the other pump you know like mm. um and so you can get you know the idea is that you have these groups of instruments that are are, are being handled one way by compression by in the in the in the the dynamic control the envelope change uh if you will um, but then it's not affecting other things in the mix. And sometimes that's necessary. You know, uh, I don't do it all the time. Nowadays, I rarely do the multi-stereo bus thing. I usually just do one. Um, but it depends. Um, I think th that mix with the master's video where I had multiple stereo buses and that's a good, um, um, way of checking out what I'm doing with it. I'm doing it different than Brower does it, but for sure but i think that was the, the, what happened in that song is i had my stereo bus chain and it sounded good on everything but like 
a, a certain element. I forgot what it was, but there were some sounds that came in later in the song that didn't sound good going through that chain, but everything else did. So at that point, I'm like, all right, well, how do I solve this problem? I'll just make another stereo bus and I'll change what I need to change on it and then send those sounds to this new stereo bus so I can, you know, handle them differently and, and get the sound that I'm hearing in my head type of thing. And I think it was just something wasn't working well on, on the other, on the, on these one group of instruments. I think it was another drum kit or some synths or something. I'm not sure, but either way, you know, I needed, you know, to alter the stereo bus for these sounds. And then I recombined them. I was like, Oh, cool. But I was already doing a parallel too. So now I had four stereo buses. So I had two mains and two parallels of each, each one. So it, I don't, advise um, engineers that are starting out to do all this crazy elaborate shit. It, you really have to develop your ear first um, to understand why you're doing something to do it. Um, and, uh, and, and I've found also that the better I get at mixing, the more I don't need to lean on stuff like that as much. Um, or I, you know, I, I may or may not use it, but I just try to get things more right at the source. Now I think it, it might be a little bit harder, but it's just what I'm into lately. But the multi-stereo busting, you know, can be a, a useful tool um, in the sense of, you know, solving a problem, you know, in, in, in trying to get the sound that you want to happen. And it works well, you know, if done right, it works great. You know? I love uh, working in the box because for that same reason, you can route things differently. You could You could approach every song completely differently. And I think people who are starting out, they're like gear envy or gear lusty for guys with Fairchilds and Poltex and SSLs. And at the end of the day, it's like it's really about training your ear to hear the differences yeah. in that and yeah. not feeling like you don't have what it takes to do a, an amazing mix with being in the yeah. box. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think the box is very capable, you know, and you know, and it's been proven to us time and time again by guys like Servin and Phil Tan and Chad Blake and whoever else mixes in the box. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's the ears, not the gear. And it, it does mixing in the box sound exactly like mixing on an SSL console with a bunch of outboard gear? No, it's a different tone. Um, the plugins have a different tone than the outboard gear does but it doesn't mean you can't get a great mix either way you know um you just have to approach it a little differently um when it comes to like headroom and gain and things like that you got to be a little I, for me at least i feel like you got to be a little bit more conservative um with levels and stuff in pro tools i feel like the plugins sound better when you don't give them as much level um to me whereas in the analog world overloading outboard gear in the board is a huge part of, you know, getting cool mojo happening on your, on your sounds. I'll still do that and I'll print it. If I'm in a room with some gear and I'm, and I have time or if I have a need, like, you know, like I have a sound that I feel like would benefit from some of that, you know, especially when it comes to distortion or, you know, guitar pedals, things like that. Um, I'll print it. You know, I'll run it through it. I'll print it back in, and then it'll be locked into the box at that point, and and then I can do whatever I need to do with it from there. But I'm very much 
it, it, it very comfortable mixing in the box at this point. And I feel it almost has like the sound makes it, it, the music have a, a, like a modern element to it. It, it. it modernizes things in a way, um, you know, because so much stuff is done with software and plugins now. Um, and there's so much music being created in people's bedrooms and houses and in random spots. Um, and it's all done with software for the most part. And uh, I think that's kind of changing the whole, you know, textural landscape of mixing and sonics. But getting good mixes in the box is definitely is doable. I think a lot of the big boys still use the, the gear, but that's just because they came from that world and they can. Yeah. And it has a certain it has a certain aesthetic that they like. But you know, you got guys like Serban and Chad Blake who are just like winning best engineered album Grammys and shit, mixing in the box. <laughs> you know, it's the way I look at it is if you know if the these seventeen year old kids that are like you know putting out all this fucking you know electronic music from their bedroom that sounds amazing or whatever or or you know listening to like Kevin Parker you know do currents inside of Ableton, you know, it's just, you know, it's so there, the technology is there, it's doable. And I want to be the one, one of the ones who's, who's, who's doing it in the box, you know, for the most part, it's just, I like that, you know, and I like the flexibility, you know, being able to jump around, change songs all the time. Yeah. Like I, that's a long winded, long winded explanation. No, no, it's awesome, man. You know, your low end on your records are fucking insane like i used references from your mixes to buy speakers <laughs> like the speakers i had oh, really? i use uh i'm sorry the beyonce mix i'm like if i can't hear that lower octave i'm not buying it like atc's one of the, <laughs> the ocean waves could re reproduce that i'm like that that's what i need to hear yeah. and like i think what in the box now the analog couldn't be able to hear it like it wouldn't be able to work properly with all that low-end information like how um how are you processing the low-end information because you have great mid-range because there's a lot of records that you hear just sub snares and like vocals and you lose the mid-range musical information but you're still keeping all that information and all that top end you know what i mean yeah yeah, I don't know. I guess it's just all instinctual. I mean, I'll do top in differently depending on the record or maybe the genre or the vibe. You know, sometimes you want to do all subtractive EQ and then not boost too much top in because you want to just use the top end that the mic had naturally or that the source had naturally. Um, if I like that texture of the top end, um, or if you know, because you could you could if you're recording with a u47 that's vintage through a neve and you know that top end is really nice you know and then it, i the way i look at it is sometimes i'm like okay do i want to use the mic's top end and just do pull out all the stuff i don't want in the mids and or do i want to do a little bit more like modern approach where like i'll boost a, a fair amount of top in and mid range and pull the, and pull the level down and, and, and change the top in uh, texture, you know, to like whatever EQ I'm using, which if it, whether it be an SSL waves or like, or maybe I want something like, 
the Massenberg or, you know, the millennia or something like that, where like, they're all different textured top ends. And then you just pick, okay, like, which one do I want today? Like, what, what's going to be the best top end for this? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, cause every EQ has a different texture and a different grain, if you will. And all those decisions get made, you know, based off, you know, the vibe and the feel, like what we're trying to do, what the producer wants, all that kind of shit. But, um, you know, I, I know there's a lot of mixers, like they just kind of have their like set way of doing everything. Like they do their top end like this, they do their vocals like this, they do this and they try to, whereas I look at everything as, you know, am I doing some like all indie thing today that needs to be a little more ragged or do am I doing something that's pop radio? Um, that needs to be super present and, and, and have a lot of energy in that way. It all depends on how I make those decisions you know, and how I'm feeling that day, you know, just that sort of thing. But thank you, by the way, for the compliments on the mid range, that sorry mix. I have my issues with it, but it was, um, it was one of those things where, you know, the demo mix that I did, um, uh, you know, was the favorite. Um, and, uh, you know, I had done, I did like some different alt passes on that mix and then like that I thought were way better, but then, you know, they got it, the, the demo mix got approved. So it is what it is. Dude, that, <laughs> that, that's an insane mix. I mean, I think uh, those sort of records where, you know, the demo has a certain vibe because I feel like that's the first time the artist is actually hearing it done. You know, like they'll cut vocals yeah. They'll do effects, True. and then when they play it back, it's like an it's like a it's like a you know serotonin. It's like a hit. It's like oh my god, it's like a dopamine. Hit. It's like I I hear it, yeah. and I can understand yeah. why artists love the records. And sometimes they they're just vibing yeah. differently on that record, and you're like you can't beat the vibe, you know? Yeah, I think I yeah I agree, and it those things are good, and but they can also haunt you. Um, I think. Nowadays, you know, everybody makes records in houses and hotels and random places. And, you know, the place that you might be doing the rough mix might not be the most ideal sonic uh, space acoustic wise, but you just have to kind of get it done and do the best you can. And it's definitely made me better, you know, just being able to, you know, do those roughs in the moment on the spot with the artist, you know, and get the overall vibe and the effects and all the things happening quick Mm -hmm. um before it gets old before it gets old um while they're in the moment while they're like super focused on being creative with the writing um and then and just do your broad strokes and 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 get it done as fast as possible and just you know and then afterwards you know be able to preserve that feel and energy that you created in that rough that might not be sonically perfect because of how fast you had to do it or where you were when you did it but being able to preserve those sonics um in that mojo but then refine it in a way where it's going to translate and get and and do what you wanted to do on different speaker systems you know that's something that i'm always trying to manage um you know is being able to um, preserve the vibe of the demo but at the same time get the sonics you know that needs to happen you know uh, for uh you know, translation, you know, whether it's in a club or a car or a Bluetooth speaker or a phone or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I have, um, when you were out in New York and um, you're in LA, right? 
Yeah, I'm in LA. So, like, when you when you moved from New York to LA, were there any um, like big changes that you saw? Like, man, it's like LA is a completely different vibe, a different you know structure. Because I feel like New York used to be the epicenter, but when all those big studios started closing down, it just shifted all the way to the West Coast. And um, I was wondering how you felt yeah. about like that shift and uh, being out there as well, coming from New York. Yeah, um, I really, I I love being in LA now that I'm here. Um, coming up in New York, I spent 15 years coming up in New York, and there was a time where I was like, "Man, I'll never move to LA. I'll always stay in New York." And 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 then I think it was right around the time I got divorced, and I needed to like move and like my studio at Avenue A, like it was in a basement. It was really dark, you know, and I was in this kind of like a little bit depressed place in my life or whatever, going through my divorce. And I just finished lemonade, which just wiped me out. Mm. And, um, and I went out to LA to, to, um, record and work with, um, Zach from Rage Against the Machine for a month on recommend recommendation from a couple of friends. And, um, and that's when I started really thinking about like making the move out here and, you know, the weather, uh, the lower rent, the more space you get. Um, the fact that, you know, uh, most of my main clients were spending more time out here. I was tired of living in hotels half the year, working out here all the time. Um, and it would just save their budgets money or whatever if I just moved out. And I just felt like that would probably be a smart career move. And, um, but yeah, you know, it's uh, New York real estate is is crazy. You know, the rents just keep going up and up and up. Inflation, gentrification, everything, you know, is just changing that city and it's make, making it harder and harder and harder to, to do music on a budget and have a studio and be able to pay rent and all that kind of stuff. So California just makes all that stuff easier. And then little by little by little, more and more people come out here and then the community gets larger and bigger and you know i i really enjoy it I'm, I'm glad to be in california you know i miss new york but at the same time you know right now you know i'm i have my ha my studio in my house you know i have a backyard <laughs> have windows have you have light, light. You know. he made it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah mixing with sunlight you know in the daytime is fucking amazing yeah, I really. Someone says, uh, really "Make your mixes that. brighter." <laughs> <laughs> I know it's 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 funny, like how that works. You know, I definitely, you know, like when you when you l wake in the morning and you listen to the mix with with sunlight coming through the windows with fresh ears versus, you know, at ten o'clock at night when you're right before you go to bed and it's dark and you got like colored lights on and shit and it's all vibey in the studio and you listen, it's like. Those psychoacoustic things are real, you know, but the idea is that it sounds good no matter what. Yeah, you know, um, you're an incredible mixer, but you're an incredible person as well, and so humble, man. I'm so uh, I'm so thankful to have you oh, on the podcast, you. man, because it's it's one thing to be successful, and there's another thing to be um, to share that knowledge with others. You know, there's 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 a lot of uh, people that kind of hold on to secrets and they kind of hold on to things and they're like, I, I won't say anything. I won't, you know, say any secrets or, or things are 
but I feel like, you know, you're very uh, open and sharing this knowledge helps a lot of people. Um, yeah. Thanks. Thank you, man. Thank you. Thank you. Especially coming from a time um, where, you know, like for me, like there was like gear sluts and, and no, no information, especially people who made records like yourself that influenced how I hear records and, and how I make records. You know what I mean? Like, that's why I got into music. It's like, damn, like, I want to be like yeah. Stu, like, you know, because you love what you do. Oh, thanks, man. You love what you do. And there's so much passion behind the art. And uh, I just want to, you know, show people that, you know, we're not just like robots. You know, a lot, a lot of people, uh, I feel like engineers kind of get a bad rap of like, you know, being like kind of robots and very technical and uh you know as we are technical you know there's a huge creative and human aspect to what we do yeah yeah i agree thank you for all that it was very kind um you know i mean it's as far as holding on the secrets and stuff like that i don't know i don't believe in it personally just because your brain you know your brain is your your style, you know, the way you're going to do it, giving someone a technique on like how to, you know, EQ a bass or something like that. You know, I, I'm very eager to do that. I mean, because people did that to me, you know, and I think, but also at a lot of times, you know, the, the majority of what I learned about mixing was not from engineers that I assisted, to be mm -hmm. honest. Um, I, I learned by watching content and reading magazines and practicing like techniques and things like that. I learn and, and, and whatnot. Um, it's, um, it was infinitely helpful, you know, to see people's chains and stuff like that. But at the same time, did I end up sounding like them? Fuck no, you know, and nobody will, you know? Uh, but you know, that I given back and given, given this information forward, I think, you know, it's, it's it's key i mean not to mention just on a whole level i feel like you know having a lot of things open source and that open source mentality of the world of giving the knowledge back you know um it just makes everything better it makes music better it makes production better it makes you know everything better and i'm at the end of the day i i don't really feel like I'm ever going to lose work because I gave someone like some techniques that I use to make a mix sound a certain way or something like that. And even still like two years down the road, I might not even do that technique anymore. And I just, I found a better way to do it or something. So it's just, it's all relative, you know, but I, I do like the, 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 I'd like it when people just give their knowledge, give it all their techniques and stuff up and they don't really stress it because you know, at the end of the day, it's like you're not going to sound like that person no matter what you no do. No matter what you do. You know, I, 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 I don't believe, you know, personally. You know, and we all learn by, like, getting information somehow, some way. And, you know, I remember, I remember certain things that I learned how to do, like, way late in the game. And I was like, man, if I had <laughs> been able to learn this a little bit earlier, you know. You know, but, you know, I, you know. It, that's just how it goes, I suppose. You know, it's just like you know. Sometimes you just have to bang your head against the wall to figure something out. And you're like, oh, okay, hundred percent. You know. Anyway. Yeah, you know, it's, it's it's like Chad Blake. I tried to use his stereo bus, and it just completely fucked up my entire mix. But 
I, like, <laughs> I tried to do everything like the guy. Yeah. Like his records sound great, but he has great records. He's yeah. got amazing records where he's adding his artistic input, and it's just not not only that. He like he's a cool guy. So I spoke to him at AES, and he was talking to me for like thirty minutes. Like, yeah, I use the Sans amp like this. Yeah, like yeah. he doesn't care because he knows sharing that information yeah. is gonna help someone. It doesn't make you sound like him. But like you said, exactly. Nobody's gonna sound like Chad Blake, you know. Like you, you, it's impossible. Nobody's gonna be able to mimic his style and like his swag, you know. It's just impossible. But his techniques, you know, in that way, you know, are work for him. Um, he he figured all that stuff out through trial and error, pretty much himself, you know, because he wanted a mix in the box and he wanted to change his whole thing up. It, it just because. You know, he's a true artist and he wanted to evolve. Um, you know, I have more, uh, so much respect for that guy. Like, you know, and, and you're right. You know, I've tried his stereo bus uh, chain too. And it, you know, it doesn't, it didn't totally work for me either. Um, but I've used some of it, you know, like I've, I've definitely like combined some of those plugins with other plugins that I like that work better for me. And like, but the idea of mixing through saturators in that way and, and in creating your sound of your console that you don't have that you have to you know if you want you know that that harmonic distortion coloration saturation glue factor that you get from going through a bunch of transformers and and, and through analog gear you can simulate that in the box in different ways and and his whole approach and his gain staging and all that was pretty mind-blowing for me when I learned it when I, I went to his seminar at, in France and, and checked him out it was um, transformative, you know, and, and it was a huge, huge, huge inspiration. Yeah, that's the, I mean, I think, you know, what he was doing harmonically is what I took away from it. Like harmonics, especially when you're yeah. working on analog, you're kind of getting a little bit of that THD no matter what, you know, and uh, yeah, that, mm-hmm. that definitely took my mixes to another level because I remember someone saying Pro Tools has literally no sound. You know, it's literally has no noise floor. Yeah. So he said the, the issue with Pro Tools was, he said if they mimicked a curve of like a Studer A800, then maybe guys would have jumped on it quicker. But it was so clean that they were mm-hmm. like, what the hell? Like, this, it doesn't sound like my e-console or whatever. So they were saying that that yeah. was another reason why guys wouldn't go to Pro Tools uh because of like the the sonic differences and they're like well you know i can mix faster on an ssl anyway but uh yeah but now yeah. you can put an ssl in the in the yeah. in pro tools you know <laughs> yeah you can do that and it and it and it and they both work good and they both don't sound exactly like each other you know um you know it's all the sound that's in your head and what you're trying to create and you know and and how you balance and in and, and the choices you make, you know, I think the tools are getting better and better and better. There's a, there's a lot of focus and interest in making digital sound exactly like analog. And maybe we'll, maybe it will be in, in, in distinguishable one day, but I don't know if it will. I don't know if it matters. You know, I think, you know, it's, uh, it's, you can do a good mix either way and and i would much rather mix in the box you know than 
be forced to only use analog equipment and no computer equipment. You know, if I had to pick one or the other, I would definitely go to the box. I feel in, I love the work that people are doing. I think engineers are getting better and better and better at mixing in the box and making it sound better. Um, and, um, cause it's a different, it's a different approach, but, uh, yeah, it's, uh, Chad is, you know, he's one of those guys where, you know, he can get fat and warm and lush, you know, uh, mixes happening like totally in the box, all with plugins really, really well, you know, and he's kind of proved that you can, you can do that sound in the box. Whereas a lot of rock mixers weren't really adopting mixing in the box. Rock mixers were, were huge on like, no, it's got to go through an Ever and SSL and it's got to be mixed this way. And, and we, we, you know, you, you can't get that, that sound, um, you know, working in the box and Chad's just like, you know what, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it anyway, you know? And, um, and, and, and he was the guy that was like known for being like really, really like analog sounding. So, you know, so I like them both. Yeah. He, he, he adapted really quickly and he was the reason why I got rid of all yeah. my outboard gear. Cause I'm like, he was mixing before the thing was even ready for, to be mixed on. Like he was mixing on pro tools when there was like five plugins on there and still made it sound amazing, which is mind. Yeah. 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 yeah just trial and error, you know, sitting there figuring it out figuring out what works and you know but he had you know he had developed his ears for a long time before he he taught himself all that and and i think i'm grateful too that i started in the studio where we did stuff you know where my ear knows what real poltex and real ssl eqs and compressors sound like you know and what that does um and then you have that kind of imprint in your mind and then you can try to you know, find that sound in the digital realm. And a lot of times it's, you know, it's, you're not going to find it by doing the same things, you know, or by, or finding the, uh, the model plug-in version of whatever you would use in the, the analog world. You know, you, you might have to use something completely different and alter it in a way to get that sound in your head, you know? And I think that's what Chad does. You know, he doesn't look at it like, Oh, I have to, you know, do the same signal change as what I used to do in the analog world. He He's inventing a whole new approach, you know, based off, you know, following his ear. And that's, that's a great lesson, you know? Yeah. You know, um, it's one last question and uh, maybe the important one, what gets you in the zone? What gets you focused to do a mix every single day? Um, I mean, yeah, good sleep, wake up in the morning, fresh, uh, you know, uh, some, some coffee, and some, uh, some, uh, superfoods <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, and then I'm in a good song, you know, just having something that I'm excited about mixing something that I'm into, something that I'm a fan of and, uh, a good song, good performance, all those things. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for your time, Stu. It's been a, this has been a great conversation oh, and, uh, Max, Stu, want to take Stu, us home? Thanks so much for for joining us for the first episode. Um, you know, I it was great just to be a fly on the wall and kind of learn what you you've gone through to get to where you are today. And um, there's one thing that 
that was from the beginning of this conversation that I wanted to to ask you about, and that's just about enough for me. What did you learn that you applied to your work, to your professional career, as a pizza delivery guy? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean... My first job was at Burger King. You know, I worked at Hardee's. I worked at Pizza Hut. I worked as a busboy, a dishwasher, and like all kind of restaurants. I mean, you just, you, you got to do your best no matter what job you have. If you, you know, if you're scrubbing, you know, it's like when I used to work at restaurants and the toilet would overflow, you know, and I'd have to go in there and clean it up. I clean it up really fucking good because I'd wanted to, you know, I just, that's just the way I was taught and, you know, having work ethic and having, you know, being able to um, do the dirty work and like, and, and still uh, not feel like entitled, you know, just being able to like dig, dive into the trenches and do the shit you don't want to do, you know, and, 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 and do it the best you possibly can. You know, I think that's what I learned really is, because in this music business, there's not a lot of opportunities and the grass is always greener on the other side. And it doesn't matter how glamorous something you might think working for someone is or, 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 or whatever, you know, there's going to be days that are really, really hard. And you're going to have to do things you don't want to do. And you're going to have to do it with a smile on your face and do it well. And uh, I think it's just, you know, that's what I learned from delivering pizzas and all that stuff is just, you know, just uh, be thankful that you got a job, work really hard, and you're always being watched by everybody, and you're always being evaluated all the time, and you know, so you're you're gonna have better opportunities if you approach everything with you know dedication and perfect. You know, try to be perf- like a perfection. Hundred uh, percent. Did mentality. you scrub the back of the toilet? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. But yeah. I, I can't remember, but yeah, but still, you know, it's, uh, you know, I always, you can, nowadays, uh, you can tell right off the bat, you go in the studios and it's just, people want things, assistants and interns, they want it really fast. They don't want to do the, they don't want to do the dirty work. And, you know, and to me, it's just like, I don't want anybody on my team that's not willing to get their hands dirty, you know, and, and that's afraid of hard work, you know, so it's, uh, you know, having that that bright attitude is key. key. That know, about says everything. it all about who you Super are. Good, you, you know yeah. what they say in, in restaurants is that if you go to the toilet and the back of the toilet isn't clean, that you know that they're not doing their food right. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's, right. That's an amazing right. thing, man. Exactly. Thanks so much for your yeah. time. Sam, you can close yeah. this one out. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you, Stu, for your time, your, your knowledge. Um, thank you so much man i don't i don't know much more to say but dude thank you so much oh my pleasure thanks for having me and if you ever if you want to do it again let me know i'd be glad to do it again awesome man but uh and sam really appreciate all the stuff you're doing on the internet your podcast the group chats on instagram all that stuff you all the stuff you're spearheading the community that you're helping evolve and create between all of us you know what i mean really appreciate what you're doing and, and um it doesn't go unnoticed. Man. Thank you, man. So thank thank you. you. I appreciate that. Stu, everybody. Thank you.